I'm Randy Rutkowitz, and my guest today is Dr. Joe Palka, science correspondent for National Public Radio. I'm sure many of you have heard his reports on NPR. Joe Palka received his PhD degree in psychology from the University of California at Santa Cruz, where he worked on human sleep physiology. He began his journalism career in television in 1982 in Washington, D.C., where he was a health producer for a local CBS affiliate. After leaving television in 1986, he spent seven years as a print journalist for Nature and Science magazines. Joe Palka joined NPR in 1992 and is currently focused on Joe's Big Idea. Stories in this series explore the processes of science and invention. How did a psychology PhD lead to an outstanding career as a science correspondent? Let's find out. Joe Pelka, welcome to Pathways. Thanks for having me. So let's start from the very beginning. When were you bitten by the science bug? Well, actually, it's one of those things that, uh, well, the science bug or the science journalism bug. Well, how about science bug up front because you uh, got a PhD in psychology and we'll, we'll explore the, the science correspondent bug uh, in a little bit. Well, I, uh, I can actually give you the, uh, the specific uh, time that I was bitten by the science bug. It was Thanksgiving of 1970. Uh, I was a freshman at Pomona College in Claremont, California, and a friend of mine was at Stanford University in, uh, in Palo Alto. And uh, some of my friends in Southern California said they were going to drive up to Northern California for the holiday. And so I said, well, let me come. I've never been up there. So I went up to Stanford to visit my friend. It turns out that his dorm resident was a guy named Bill Dement. And Bill Dement, uh, I'm not sure if you know that name, but he's, I would call him the father of modern sleep research. In the early 50s, he did a paper showing that REM sleep was uh, something that occurred at 90 minute or so intervals throughout the night. And then he did a lot of work about REM and dreaming and, and, and since then writing about the necessity of sleep and the importance of sleep. But anyway, when he was a when he, in 1970 he was a dorm resident at Stanford University and my friend was in his dorm and he had set up a sleep lab in the basement of the dorm and so I needed a place to stay <laughs> and I became an experimental subject in the in the dement sleep lab and the next night I watched as somebody else was asleep and I was just incredibly fascinated by the notion that you could almost peer inside of someone's brain and figure out what was going on. Um, without having to ask, but just looking at wiggly lines of an EEG or EMG or an EO, what is it, ocular uh, movements, mm -hmm. just, it, it blew me away. So that's what got me interested in sleep research. Well, so that, that, that pretty much explains too about why you pursued the area for your uh, doctoral dissertation as well. I, you know, as an undergraduate, I, I kind of noodled around in sleep studies, but I never had the opportunity to actually work in a sleep lab in college, but during the summers, I would, uh, I got a couple of, well, first volunteer jobs and then actually paying gigs as a sleep lab technician. So I, I, I got to do some on, you know, hands-on work. And when I graduated from college, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, you throw a lot of bread on the water to see what comes back. And, uh, I, I put in an application to work on a sleep project with one of the people I had read about in, as an undergraduate, and he said, sure, come on and work with me. So that's how I started uh, my graduate career in psychology back in 1977. What, what was your undergraduate major? Psychology. So when you started graduate school, 
What were your plans that after you get your doctorate? What do you? What were your plans on uh, career at that point? Uh, I don't think I had figured that out yet. <laughs> I I guess I thought I would go on and become a researcher in a research university, but <clears throat> it was clear to me that um, as I went through graduate school that I was an okay researcher, but I was a really good teacher. And I like the teaching aspects of, of being uh, in graduate school better than the research aspects. And I like the learning aspects. I mean, every time uh, something new came along that I was supposed to figure out, I, I really had a great time figuring it out. Uh, so I, but, but I mean, I also was aware that if you're going to go on in a research career in academia, academic science, um, you better have some research chops because nobody really cares, or at least at the time, I think it may still be true. Nobody really cares if you can teach a good course. They want to know, can you do research and bring in grants and stuff? And so I was a little bereft by the time I got to the end of four years thinking, what am I going to do? And that leads to how I got involved in my next uh, career. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue because that was my next question. Sure. So um, I was sitting in my office uh, in the basement of Clark Kerr Hall on the UCSC campus. And I was reading my copy of Science Magazine, and there was a picture of a bunch of people who looked like me, or more or less like me, posed in front of a monument in Washington, D.C. And I read the caption, and it was the Mass Science, AAAS Mass Media Science and Engineering Fellows Program. And um, they were all smiling and nodding, and they had done their orientation in Washington, and then various they went to various news outlets around the country. It was a it was a fellowship for 10 weeks during the summer where you would be plunked down in a, in a real live news operation. And it turned out that actually one of my colleagues from Santa Cruz psychology department was in the picture. I never noticed it at the time. But uh, she came back and told me that the program was life changing for her. Um, and I can tell you just by the way that she just retired after an amazing career at the New York Times. So she yeah, life changing is the right word. But she said that she thought I would like it as well. So I applied and, and got the fellowship. And I went to a TV station here in Washington, D.C., and I was totally hooked. I mean, it was so exciting to be covering science news and having people really eager to talk to you as opposed to, go away, kid, you bother me when you're in graduate school. And so I, uh, I, really, I really had a fabulous summer. And I came back determined that that's what I wanted to do in my career. And uh, so I, I, I finished my, I was ABD, as they say. I had to write up my dissertation, and I didn't think that would take so long, but it, it usually takes longer than you think. So it took me two quarters, and I graduated in the winter of 82, and then started looking for work. And, um, you know, in one of these, I would attribute it to persistence and gumption and good luck. Uh, I, I landed a job. Uh, as the vacation relief writer for KGO, which is the, which was the number one station in the fifth largest market in the country. So all of a sudden, with no real experience, I was writing the five o'clock news, and that was crazy. But you know, <laughs> don't admit you don't know what you're doing. Just do it. So that was helpful because you, you had a, a colleague uh, in Santa Cruz who was a AAAS fellow. You did it. You you just were taken by it and is just consumed by it and as you got there I, I, I suspect your 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 friend was a mentor for you but what about other 
uh, mentors in, in science and, journal, in, in journalism for you who've helped uh, pave the way for you in your career? Well, um, my friend <clears throat> was helpful, but she was more interested in print, and I detested print and never wanted to have anything to do with it, uh, at least at the time. <laughs> so it's funny that I became a, a writer as well. But, but um, my mentor to begin with was a guy named Steve Gendel, who was the health and science correspondent for uh, Channel 9 at the time. And he, he was just um, a really excellent uh, writer and uh, uh, science correspondent and he kind of taught me a lot about how you tell a science story and and actually began my education and how much you have to leave out because in a minute 45 or two minute piece you're not going to give all the details so how do you put in the details that are crucial and leave out the ones that you can leave out so he was very helpful and then uh, later on I, I worked with another general assignment reporter named Don Torrance and Don, um, I was hired actually to be his producer, which meant that I was supposed to help him figure out what, you know, what were the important science stories. But Don really showed me how to how to do interviews and and ask the right questions. And he also was a brilliant writer. And I think writing is um, is a really valuable skill. And I, I chose to go into television because I didn't like to write, but it's it's still writing. And uh, and um, actually, after I was in television for a while. I took a break and, and went to work for a friend of mine and spent the year basically writing. Um, he had a lot of uh, editorial stuff that he did in his business. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And pretty soon it wasn't so hard. And uh, so I was very grateful for that. And when I made the switch to nature from from Channel 9, which was kind of bizarre, um, I was already ready to start writing at length. So I was, I was pleased about that. So what did you, so you were a Washington news editor for, for nature. What, what was the, what was your job all about? What'd you do? Well, yeah, I don't know. Somewhere that name, that title got stuck on. I, I guess I held it for a while, but mostly what I did was, so the news section of nature was about eight or 10 pages in the front of the book, we call it. Um, the, the science and nature are both divided in what they call front of the book and back of the book. And back of the book are the peer-reviewed journal articles, which I had nothing to do with and, and had no influence over. And the front of the book were the news articles and the book reviews and the perspectives and things like that that, that I had a lot to do with. And um, basically, it was reporting on the most important science, a lot of science policy topics of the day. I remember at the time, one of the hot button issues was the uh, release of bioengineered organisms into the environment. So I wrote a lot about something called the coordinated framework. And, and uh, so it was interesting to, you know, I mean, it was the beginning of the biotech revolution and the government was trying to figure out how to regulate it and they didn't really have laws that were designed to regulate it. So they wound up using FIFRA and TOSCA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide and Rodenticide Act, <laughs> which uh, wasn't really designed to, to regulate um, bioengineered organisms, but that's what it was used for. Um, and and TOSCA was the Toxic, Toxic Substances Control Act. The other big story that was just getting started, and I was very pleased to be the first one to write about it in the quasi-popular media, obviously science and nature are already um, somewhat specialty journals, but I was the first one to write about the plans for a human genome project. And of course, uh, that took on quite a life of its own. So I was pleased to be 
at the start of that uh, process. But yeah, I would write. Uh, I would write as much as was needed to fill the magazine that week, and that was kind of a it was a kind of a, a cool challenge because it felt like uh, it felt like there was a lot riding on my shoulders. You know, I couldn't say, "Oh, I don't have any good ideas for a story this week," because the magazine had whatever number of pages it had, and those had to be filled up. So they we wrote until it was full. So after you were at Nature, you then went to science and, and, and as a, a science correspondent. So exactly what kind of things were you doing there and how did they differ from what you were doing at Nature? Um, at Nature, I was uh, covered everything. So it could be space one day and astronomy the next and biomedical the third and, and ge geoscience the next. Um, but when I got to science, um, there was a much bigger staff at the time and, and it was much more beat oriented and they already had people working on geosciences and actually they had someone working on the genome project full time and they had someone working on AIDS full time, a lot of the stories that I've been covering. So I, I kind of had to um, narrow the scope of what I covered and so I, I tended to focus on biomedical research and genetics and uh, I wrote a lot of articles about um, NIH and NIH funding and the recombinant DNA advisory committee, which was just getting underway, and the first attempts to do human gene therapy and and stuff like that. So it was it was also a very exciting time. I, I actually, yeah, I I had a tremendous time, um, and uh, I I liked also. I knew that what I wrote was immediately consumed by the scientists that I wrote about because they were very eager to uh, to make sure that I got their point of view. And not the wrong point of view, which you know, which is always a little funny because uh, there's always more than one right point of view, and it depends on where you sit to see which one is really right. Exactly, but we we scientists, of course, will say, well, that's that's how we're interpreting our data, and this is what we, how we think it what right. we think it means. So maybe right, we, right. let's let's take a step back to mentors again, where we, you know you had people who were helpful to you, Don Torrance, Steve Gundell, but you are a mentor as as well. And in, you have a number of protégés, interns, and tell me how that's important to you. I think it goes back to the teaching that I mentioned. I really liked um, sharing knowledge and, and communicating ideas and helping people figure stuff out. And I feel now, I mean, we haven't talked about the radio career, but I've been doing this for uh, 25 years, and I, I really feel like it's time to give back. And I, I especially feel that for people who were in my position, uh, graduate students not absolutely sure they wanted to pursue a career in, in academic science, I, I want to serve as a role model for them in one sense to say, hey, you can leave academia and not feel like a failure because I can guarantee you that I don't feel like a failure professionally, even though my, uh, my academic career ended in 1982. So I, I, I know all the pressure when you're in graduate school is to sort of move on in the shoe steps of your, of your advisor or something similar. And the idea that you would leave academia seemed, seemed to have the implication that you weren't good enough. And I guess in a sense, I wasn't. But not being good enough at that didn't mean I wasn't good enough at something. And right. uh, I was very pleased with what, what turned out to be the right thing for my career. So one of the things I like to do is just go back and reinforce that message 
uh, for graduate students who are feeling like, oh, God, I'm a failure if I don't want to go on and do this anymore. I want to say to them, don't buy into that. Uh, uh, that's, that's an unfair thing that your advisors do to you and that you do to yourself and you have to stop. And so after I say that, then I say, well, you know, there's there are tons and tons of interesting and, oh, by the way, possibly more financially lucrative jobs you can do, certainly than becoming a postdoc. <laughs> and uh, and so I tell them, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. I think uh, having learned skills as a Ph.D., you know, I, it's been a rare, rare, rare occasion that anybody has ever called upon my expertise on <clears throat> thermoregulation and human sleep in my academic in my in my journalism career. But the skills I learned about problem solving and the scientific method and how to address a question and where to go for research and how to find reliable people to interview, that's all stuff I learned in graduate school. And, um, you know, that's valuable and, and it's not to be discounted. So, you know, so what if you don't ever get asked about, you know, phage 219 or T17 or something like that? What you know is about how to how to solve a problem and how to fix a piece of equipment and how to work your way through a bureaucracy and how to figure out who has who has who you have to wheedle and plead to to say yes. You know, it's all the it's all the life skills that that will serve you really well when you get into uh, into into a different field than than academic science. And a very very important reinforcement of the message that we're trying to 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 send to both graduate students and postdocs that your your doctoral education teaches you, or you develop so many skills that are so applicable in so many different ways that it's really important for them to understand that. Um, so let's, let's talk about your radio career. How you were, you were at science, how did you find your position at NPR? Well, it found me, which I, I have to say, in, in every case, since, I've, since I left television, every job has found me. Um, nature called and then offered me a job and then science called and offered me a job and then NPR called and offered me a job. And the reason they knew about me was, you know, they, unlike today where you don't go out beyond your computer, you can watch everything live streamed and what have you. Um, I had to get out of the office and go to press conferences. And so I saw my colleagues who were working in other, uh, in, in other um, media and one of them was Richard Harris at NPR, and Richard and I got to be pretty close friends right away. And uh, he was at he was at NPR, and it came time that they had an opening on the science desk. And Richard said, uh, "I've asked my boss if we could ask you if you're interested." And and so I'm asking you. And uh, I, well, I said, "What's the deal?" And he said, "Well, it's a it's a one year contract and a pay cut." <laughs> and <laughs> I said, well, that sounds great, <laughs> but it, it's one of those things where my uh, editor at, at Science and I at the time weren't getting along all that well, and, and uh, you know, you look at yourself at some point, I guess I'm doing it again now, but, you know, I was in my uh, late 30s or early 40s and trying to decide, well, do I want to be at Science for the rest of my career, because I sure liked it, but I thought, well, maybe taking on a new challenge would be worth it, and so... I quit my job at science and took a pay cut and a temporary assignment, and and that was uh, that was 25 years ago almost, <laughs> so um, or actually more than, so um, in a way I'm I'm kind of glad that I didn't get along with my editor so well because I never would have made the move if I had been really happy, um, but 
the change was very, uh, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, I used to think more in terms of science policy and, and scientists as my audience. And I, I had to get used to the, the fact that I was talking to a general audience again. And um, that took some doing. And, and the other thing is uh, a lot of people who learn to write for print have trouble writing for radio. And that's where I think some of my uh, training in television helped because I had gotten used to listening for sound, um, sound in the terms of um, interview sound. And uh, so I was, I was pretty adept at it. And uh, so it wasn't as difficult a transition for me as it was for some of my colleagues who came from print. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm a, there's a, there's a performance aspect of, of being a radio reporter. And I like that part, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm enough of a ham to want to go out on stage and tell people stuff. So <laughs> works for me. Yeah. I, I guess, so being able to do all these things, I, yeah, I know for, for a uh, fact, well, certainly you've been doing this for a while, for a long time, and in terms of also supporting the next generation of science communicators, and it's really been important to you. In fact, I saw you, when I was a postdoc at the NIH, we had a, this around 94, 95, thereabouts, we had a seminar series called Alternative Careers in Science. And you talked a yeah. little bit about what you did, and, I th and to me it was great because all the things that you're doing now, and I'm hearing about you, there's you have one of your interns who's a PhD candidate from IU in Bloomington, uh, Kimberly, that you've just continued your messaging, your mentoring, and helping people who have doctoral educations understand that there are so many things that they can do with all the skills that they've developed, and that you can continue to do that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I mean, well, I just want to be clear that, that Kimberly is fantastic, but I don't really think of her as an intern. She's part of this thing we call Friends of Joe's Big Idea. You mentioned Joe's Big Idea is exploring uh, scientists and their processes. Friends of Joe's Big Idea is this group of now almost 700 graduate students who've said, hey, I'm interested in uh, helping, learning how to communicate better, uh, thinking about other careers. And, and yes, as you said, you know, I don't. I remember giving that talk. I've given a lot of them, but I what I used to do is um, I used to write my email address on the board and and say write to me because the biggest thing is breaking into this game. Um, it's really hard, and very few people wrote to me. I mean, I, I they, a lot of people said, "How could you put your address up there? You'll be swamped." But I wasn't. <laughs> and I think what's happened and what's been gratifying about the uh, friends of Joe's big ideas, I've been actually able to go out, talk to people, and say, "No, really, I'm serious." write my name down, send me an email, I will help you I, to the extent that I can. And when I meet a Kimberly McCoy, and we have, we have lots of others um, who are just super talented and uh, super interested and uh, you know, full of passion for both their science, but also maybe communicating, communicating science, I'm, I'm all there. I'm, I, anything I can do to help, you know, I, I, I so apart from giving them my job, which I still like, but, um, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. I want I want people to um, to feel like they have a resource, and and obviously I'm going to be. I mean, if we, if this friends of Joe's big idea grows too big, I'm going to be swamped. But uh, I 
have I'm working with a young woman who has a PhD from University of Rochester in microbiology, and she wanted to get into this field, and now she's in this field, helping me uh, sort out the faux jobies as we call them, right? And uh, turning this idea into a reality, and and honestly, I'd like to see it expand. I'm I'm I mean, it doesn't have to be just me. I I just the idea that there are resources there for people and and encouragement. You know, as you said. It was this notion of going up to NIH and telling other, telling people at a lecture, you can do this. And I just want to be there to encourage, even if I don't have time to sit down with every person that is in the room. Now, that, that, that was an important message. And I, I thought in many ways, considering the timing of it, that's our postdocs were a little bit ahead of their, ahead of the, their time. And that was helpful and open one's mind to that it, that was an enjoyable one. I know. I know you also gave a talk in Hawaii at uh, the hundredth anniversary of AAI. I'm an immunologist, so that that was exciting as well. So, when, in terms of the the Fojobi group, the Friends of Joe's Big Idea. So, if people want to get involved in that, I, I saw the map. It's all over the place, uh, folks. Yeah. And how, how did they yeah. get? How did they get in touch with? Well, it's 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 really. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. But it's really, it's really simple. Um, send me an email, jpalka, J-P-A-L-C-A at NPR. And if you're really lazy, like I am, all you have to do is put in the subject line CMI, which I will interpret to mean count me in. <laughs> and uh, what I, what I do is I send you back, uh, or Maddie will send you back a sort of a list of the things we have on offer, the Slack channel and the office hours project uh, and some of the other things that you can read about uh, and you're in um, no dues no requirements no uh, well not that many benefits but a few and certainly a chance to be in a, in a network of similar thinking people um, and if you want to learn more um, Facebook there's a Joe's Big Idea Facebook page so you can see some of the things I've been posting there's a Joe's Big Idea NPR series page, so you can see what Maddie and I have been uh, reporting on. And there's also a Fojobi, Friends of Joe's Big Idea NPR page, which tells you a little bit about the Fojobi program. But the simplest is just send an email, jpalka at npr.org, and um, that starts the ball rolling. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's it. It's easy. <laughs> It's very easy, and hopefully folks who are going to be listening to this podcast will uh, take advantage of, of those opportunities for those who are extremely excited about, about communicating science. I think that's, that's great. So it, in terms, I probably already know the answer to this question because we've talked about it throughout, but in terms of a PhD student or postdoc who really didn't know much about science journalism or maybe at all or even any other non academic career, what advice would you have for them? Well, if it's just a question about learning about what's out there, what I would suggest is read and listen to all you can. There are fantastic bloggers for science journalism. I mean, Ed Young springs to mind, but there's lots of other, David Dobbs, and oh gosh, I'm, I, if I say two, I'll be leaving 12 out, but they're all good. Cy Curious is a friend of mine. Um, I would just look and read what other people are reading and try to read why what they write seems interesting. Because uh, I think that that's how I figured out how to write for television is I just deconstructed it. And I think if you 
if you think about it and you look at it, you'll see there's a catchy first line and then there's a sort of a, a statement of what the article's about and then there's various explications throughout and and you can sort of suss out the formula. And then, you know, there's there's podcasts, there's uh, Radio Lab, they've kind of broadened their scope to other things, but tons of other stuff. Um, Shankar Vedantam has a Hidden Brain and my colleagues, Elise Spiegel, has uh, Invisibilia. Those are a little more psychologically related than hard science, but oh gosh, uh, there's all kinds of things you can listen to and read and even watch, I think. Uh, yeah, well, not so much. I'm not as familiar with the watching stuff, although there's interesting videos being produced, but they're not. Well, I mean, Maddie uh, just did these uh, three cartoons about invention that we're very proud of. So you can look at those on the net. But you can see what's there and what works and what you think doesn't work. And, and you know, it's funny because I'm, I mean, I'm old, you know. <laughs> and so I I don't know what's going to appeal. Radio appeals to me, but, you know, I listen to the jack benny show on saturday nights you know nobody's going to do that so i need to make sure that um people um who are producing this stuff are producing it for an audience that's out there today and i'm not sure i'm in tune with that audience as much as i am with the audience um that i grew up with i think it's still easier for for them to listen as opposed to to view uh, and and that so podcasts i think and and listening to your your short clips uh, Joe's big idea and other stories on NPR, I think, and other another media, I think it's very, very helpful to them. So for for me, I guess the my last question would be: Is is there a question that I should have asked you but I didn't? Uh, that's always a good one. Um, not really. I mean, I get asked a lot. You know, is this a good time to go into science journalism or science writing? And and I would say. It's not the greatest, but it's never been great. Um, jobs, when I started out, there were no jobs in television, and I got a job in television, and there are no jobs in nature and science, but I got a job there, and there's no jobs at NPR, but I got a job there. So I, I would say don't be discouraged. And also, I think that the world is changing, and unfortunately, right now, the blogs that are accepting material from graduate students aren't paying anything for them. I think that's a shame. Yeah. But I think somebody will figure out that there is a way to monetize this. Um, I'm not quite sure what it is, but I think it's going to happen. And so I don't think it's a terrible time. It's just not going to be the same kind of time as it was when I got started. And the other thing is that there are a ton of universities that have press offices, alumni magazine, uh, science uh, organizations that have press offices and have in-house magazines. There's a lot of writing that doesn't necessarily go out to the public or go uh, to the large public that I'm reaching, but it's still a chance to do science communication. And if that's your passion, I think you can find places to do it. No, that's, that's great. And especially somebody who had passion for teaching and it just, that was a natural fit for you. And as for some of our colleagues here, some of our former students and, and postdocs who've gone on to be science communicators and started nonprofits. I think that's really important to find the passion and to go for it. Yep, I agree. I, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Joe Pelka, for sharing his story of the steps he took from earning his PhD degree in psychology to developing an international reputation as an outstanding science journalist. His passion for mentoring the next generation of science communicators certainly came through loud and clear. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. 
Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website, SoundCloud, and on iTunes under IUSM Pathways. Also, in addition to the audio from our broadcasts, for some of our interviews, we've captured the video as well. Join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career path of another professional who holds a PhD in the sciences which landed them in their current and very exciting non-academic position. I'm Randy Brutkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brutkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.